I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. One of the most intractable problems facing America is the sprawling racial wealth and inequality gap. The average net worth of the typical white family is between eight to 10 times greater than that of black and Latino families. And the gap has only grown since the onset of the pandemic. Now, part of the problem, many people surmise, is in terms of their access to credit. Simply put, people of color don't always have access to the same loans and interest rates as others, even when controlling for income and wealth and are thereby sidelined from wealth-building opportunities like buying homes and starting businesses. Now, to be sure, part of this problem is likely attributable to discrimination. But experts are also finding that another driver could lie in how credit models are created. Some models, for example, may take mortgage payments into consideration for credit scoring purposes, but not rental payments, and in the process, they may privilege the wealthy over the poor. Ultimately, these kinds of questions are sparking more interest than ever in alternative data and high-tech credit models as policymakers and market participants seek to open up access to credit while keeping delinquencies small. But how it all works can be pretty complicated, not just from the standpoint of how models are created, but also in terms of the very shape of the industry. Now, To help walk us through these issues, I'm delighted to have Mike DeVere, the CEO of Zest AI, and his colleague Teddy Flo, who is the company's general counsel. Now, Zest is an AI company that creates the software for machine learning in credit underwriting, all with the aim of reducing risk and automating compliance. And given this show's longstanding interest in equity and empowerment, I found the topic of algorithms and machine learning pretty interesting. And I want to invite them onto the show to learn a bit more about the progress and pitfalls that may lay ahead as interest in the sector booms. Mike, Teddy, thanks so much for making it onto the show. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Mike, I guess I'll start off with you. Uh, I've been really looking forward uh, to this conversation a bit and, and, and really learning more because the institutional backdrop here is a little different from those uh, many of our listeners may be familiar with. Now, now Zest is, is not a bank. Uh, you're, you're not a financial institution. You're, you're a software company. And that really gives you an interesting vantage point, especially given the interest you as a company and, and, and really AI as an industry Uh, have attracted. So uh, just starting things off a bit, I can imagine lots of reasons why banks may be interested in AI, uh, especially if it can deliver fewer defaults or or faster decision-making. But but, but what role is the social element playing? And and what are really the the incentives um, that that, that you're seeing in in terms of the banks, in in terms of addressing um, uh, social issues alongside with the business issues? Well, Chris, I mean, there's there's certainly starting off with just the moral perspective of doing good, right? And when I talk to customers, I've had the opportunity to talk to a number of financial institutions over these years, and many of them 
uh, the majority of them all would like to make change. Um, so there's certainly a will there, um, but there's a question of, is there a way? And so many of them are frustrated using old tools and old approaches to eliminating that bias. And so they're, they're just left with a lot of frustration. And then from a consumer perspective, consumers are asking for the change. I mean, you know, first off, at the highest level, we, we conducted a Harris poll. Over half of Americans believe that the current credit system is broken. And then when we went on to ask um, if they knew that a financial institution had more inclusive lending practices, what would they do? Well, seven out of 10 said that they would vote with their wallet and leave that financial institution and go to the one with the more inclusive practices. So both business and consumers and investors alike want to see the change. It's just we need to show them the way. You know, what's fascinating is that what you're really pointing to in the survey is that there is uh, a reputational aspect to all this as well. Uh, and there are regulatory and policy drivers, and, and we'll get to that shortly, uh, but, but clearly there are changes in the social climate that's not only creating new opportunities to innovate, but also new kinds of, of, of pressures. Um, when financial institutions come to you or when you go out to talk to different firms, what does that look like on the ground? I mean, usually when you think about fintech, you think about efficiency or risk management, fewer defaults. How quickly does this social element come up in the conversation? Is it an afterthought? How quickly does it come up and, and, and really how? The two are connected the entire time. I mean, if you think of machine learning itself, you know, the, the approach to leveraging machine learning to predict risk, um, you know, you're able usually to get to more yeses and approval rates go up. So you're getting, you're raising um, the ocean across the board, across all the protected classes as well. And so it, it comes up in the beginning. Um, the, the question for many of them is, how do I do it? They've been sitting there and wondering, like they've been stuck with an approach called drop one, which really doesn't get them or, or solve the, the issue. Um, and so I think it's showing them the way at the same time. I think the two are intertwined. That's financial institutions broadly, but then when we think of credit unions in particular, you know, they see it as their mission. So the conversation doesn't start with the, the economics. The conversation starts with is how do I get to more yeses with my members and members of color, my members more broadly. And so it, it actually starts with that as the topic. We've talked about AI and machine learning before on this show with Michael Kearns, the University of Pennsylvania engineering professor and, and the author of The Ethical Algorithm. And you know, one lesson we took away is that there is always a little bit of ambiguity when talking about things like data-driven underwriting. Uh, on the one end of the spectrum, uh, I guess you could say there are, are algorithms for sure where one person can create a code from scratch. And, and then there's the work done where engineers take pools of historical data and, and use it to train a predictive model. Uh, when you think about those two poles, uh, you know, looking at the world of big data and AI and machine learning, where exactly does Zest fit in? So, so we definitely sit in the space where we're taking compliant data, data our customers already have on hand. Um, and so when I talk about more data, I'm not talking about creepy data like social media data, things of that sort. There is, there is room for alternative data, absolutely, uh, but nothing creepy. Um, and so it's data normally that our customers will have. 
Um, but by applying better math, we're able to consume more data. And so if you think of the, where they're stuck today is financial institutions are stuck, most of them using an approach that was developed in the 1950s, where they look at two dozen variables um, to discern if they should lend money to a customer. Um, whereas today for us, we're able to consume two to 500 variables, a thousand variables in one of our models uh, to do that. And it, yeah, I mean, it's just intuitive. If I were to describe you, Chris, and I could only say 24 things about you versus a thousand things, wouldn't a thousand things be a better description? Well, I, I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so in effect, by being able to target and identify a wider array of variables, uh, you're able to plug more information into a system, but you're using that data that's already at their fingertips. Uh, but, but what does that mean again for how you go about generating uh, the model and maintaining that model? Um, you're a software company. Um, how often must that data be updated as a matter of inputs? And, and then as a matter of output, what degree of monitoring and, and surveillance is necessary in order to meet uh, the, the business and social objectives of a financial institution and, and, and to ensure that those uh, objectives and goals are, are being maintained? Yeah. So, so, so the, two, the two topics are certainly intertwined, Chris. So so with, with our uh, models and the software that our customers use, they're able to deploy machine learning models, monitor them, and understand if the model is behaving as they expected. And if there's a population shift or a variable shift, they're able to then go back to the model and retrain it on a more current set of data. Um, just a side note, right now with what's going on in our economy, it's a critical moment uh, for us to, to, um, for our customers, because they're able to retrain their data, um, or retrain their models with data, uh, from the pandemic itself, right? Uh, in the economy today, uh, people using the old approach have models in place that have been in place for maybe five, 10 years. Um, and so I'm not really reflective of what's going on in the society. So the two, the two are important. Um, you'll be constantly evaluating if you need to retrain the data, uh, uh, retrain the model with new data. Uh, but monitoring also is critical. Uh, many companies forget that part of it, Chris. You know, they, they creating a machine learning model is one thing. I mean, my daughter's at Berkeley. She could create a machine learning model for us. But you actually have to leverage AI to monitor your model. And so having the right software and tools, which is what we do, as a company uh, to monitor it is critical to keep it safe and stable. So, so just digging a, a little bit deeper. So, so what exactly then, you know, uh, uh, in the space, what, what do software companies specifically do, right? So, you know, presumably uh, you pick up the bat phone and you're calling a financial institution or, or someone calls you and says, you know, we want to upgrade our, you know, we want to have some better outcomes. So, you know, take me from there to the better outcome. Like, what are the concrete steps that then happen um, for those uh, financial institutions that are looking to sort of upgrade their, their, their software systems? So, you know, first off, you're acquiring data. Um, and then the second step is you're looking at the data and engineering new features. So instead of the old approach where you just have a signal, let's say, debt to income, um, using the old math with machine learning, I can look at debt to income over a six month period. Uh, 
right? And look at it trended over time. Um, I could consume rent information, right? Um, and so the ability to feature engineer things that have a strong signal, that are compliant, uh, that are not biased, um, and integrate that into a model. So then you go into actually building the model. So what I've just described though, all the way up to even building the model within our software environment is automated. We can consume data, feature engineer, push a button and build a model. And that model could be anything from an XG booth to a deep neural network to a random forest, what have you. Um, then that financial institution, once they have the model, this is where the majority of them get stuck is they can't get that model through the regulatory hurdles, developing model risk management document, explaining what's happening within the, the model itself, understanding the economic impact, and then finally making sure, is it inclusive and fair? Um, and so those steps are, are steps that most companies haven't figured out how to solve for. And, and when I say most companies, I'm talking about the largest banks on the planet all the way down to the smallest credit unions here in the US have not figured that out. So once they've covered those steps, um, it's about deploying the model and putting it out into production, monitoring it, and it's stable and set. So this isn't, we're not talking about the Terminate, Terminator here. You know, this is not Skynet where it's autonomously learning out in the marketplace. It's frozen, you're monitoring it, and then you're assessing there may be a time, six months, nine months, three months, where you'll you'll retrain it or possibly rebuild it. I did appreciate the Skynet uh, reference, <laughs> just just for whatever it's worth. So you know, when you get you know to, and I think Teddy will will, will be able to really speak to, to some of this as as well. You know, when you get to some of the regulatory questions, the regulatory questions that I think have the most salience for a lot of people um, uh, are are you know have a, a very practical dimension. Right, you know, particularly when you talk about things like explainability, because you know, if, if a person is denied for a loan, they they kind of want to know, well, well, why why was I denied for a loan? You know, can, can you can you tell me, you know, what what I can do better, you know, in, in order for me to get a loan in the future? And you know, the more as you move to a much more advanced sort of AI space, right, and, and out of the world where you know, um, as inaccurate or, or as limited as they are, you know, with linear regressions, you know, you, you kind of change the input, you change the output, and you can, it, it's a little bit easier to, to fish out um, explanations. Like, how do you think through that question of, of explainability when you get to deep learning and neural networks where you have a complex model where varying you know, multiple inputs uh, can kind of uh, would have to act or interact with one another to 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 have a certain impact on an output. You know, the the the, the math is more complicated. Um, uh, the models are more complicated. How how do you think about that that question of explainability? That's a great question, uh, Chris. And the answer is actually remarkably simple in a way, in that it, the answer is sports. Um, economists in the 1970s uh, set out to predict the outcomes of like sports teams and the interactions among players and how they impacted the final score of the game. Well, that, that same math that they developed for that purpose is actually perfect at explaining how machine learning models operate. 
And um, one particular game theorist, Lloyd Shapley, uh, developed a, a fantastic set of axioms and math that predict how sports games uh, come out. And um, we use the same math uh, to predict machine learning models. You know, instead of, you know, how five basketball players interact to form the score of a basketball game, we're predicting how thousands of uh, model variables interact to result in the risk score that the bank uses to make a lending decision. What's been your experience with the regulators, particularly when walking them through this particular commercial application? We participated with the CFPB in, in a tech sprint around this explainability issue last fall. And one thing that um, we saw was that the, the real accurate reasons uh, often related to, to a historical lack of access to credit for borrowers. We saw in many instances that borrowers were being denied because they'd been denied before or because they had a low credit limit. Um, when the inaccurate methods that Mike was talking about were saying things like the borrower had too many delinquencies or something like that. And so not only does the explainability methods that we've developed um, based on sort of the game theorists work, not only are they more accurate, but they also show trends in the data that were hidden before they were available in the marketplace. And, and, and have you had any results thus far to, to, to indicate that protected groups are, are, are uh, sort of scoring better um, under these models as compared to traditional models? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I can give site example after example. I mean, um, there's an auto lender that we work with that, um, you know, by leveraging our approach to debiasing their model, as we're using adversarial debiasing, um, we were able to increase approval rates for African Americans by 4% um, at the cost of $2 alone. So if, if we just kind of extrapolate that out in the U.S., we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Black Americans that that would affect, right? I mean, you know, you look at, um, you know, one of the major uh, lenders, uh, mortgage lenders out there, um, you know, we were able to shrink the disparities in approval rates between whites and Blacks by over 30%. That's the holy grail, home ownership. And so that, we're talking about millions of Americans will be impacted and be able to afford houses um, by, by leveraging a newer math, better math, and more data. How many banks are, are, are you seeing in terms of their interest in machine learning? And, and you know, what percentage of them are, say, uh, you know, large banks, mid-sized banks, smaller banks? Yeah. And we had mentioned credit unions. You know, obviously, there are different kinds of contexts in which each of those are acting in terms of consumer lending, yeah. mortgages, and the like. You know, is, is machine learning, is this like a novelty area? Um, or is it something where... Again, getting back to our first sort of questions on incentives and incentives to address either cost or the social matters, that that's driving more interest in a particular sub uh, uh, segment uh, of, 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 of lenders. There was a study last year that was done seven out of 10, uh, actually over seven out of 10 uh, executives um, from banks mentioned that they'd like to leverage AI in underwriting. That was in, in 2020. So uh, it's across the board. What I have found to be quite interesting, though, is those regional banks and credit unions 
are some of the fastest adopters. When we look at our customer base, they're really stepping ahead of some of the largest banks uh, uh, in deploying this approach. So what then does this ultimately mean from the standpoint of who uses machine learning and, 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 and the overall AI delivery system? Are you seeing any innovation in terms of how people are viewing the role of software developers? Um, is, is this a space where, where third-party suppliers will be dominating? Or are, are you seeing something that banks and credit unions will be doing in-house? Uh, just what are you seeing in terms of how the, the entire market is taking shape? Well, well, there are, there are those financial institutions that are that are looking to us to leverage our software, um, because frankly, they don't have a large data science organization to build the model and effectively deploy it. Um, we're we're leveraging that same software and providing it to some of the largest banks where they're doing it themselves. And so, really, the end game for us is to make machine learning accessible to the entire market um, from top to bottom to address this question around predicting risk. AI is present across these financial institutions though. I mean, it's in their, their customer journey, it's in fraud, um, you know, it's all throughout the organization, but this in this highly regulated, most difficult problem, um, that's, that's where we're really focusing our attention. Mike, Teddy, thanks so much for joining the show. This has been extremely interesting. And uh, we look forward to seeing what, uh, what happens next with Zest. Great. Thanks, Chris. Obviously, big data and machine learning are complicated topics. And to really dig in, you have to be ready to discuss a range of critical questions like privacy, fairness, data, and consumer protection, questions we've obviously tried to address time and again on this podcast and in other episodes. But what I've always tried to keep in mind is that these aren't just academic questions. For so many people, access to credit can be a matter of life and death. It can determine one's educational options, how employers may view you, and how and whether a person can buy a house and start building intergenerational equity. So the idea that better math can lead to better outcomes is frankly kind of exciting, but for more than the reasons one might think. The fact that potentially socially beneficial options exist for speaking to racial opportunity gaps puts us all on notice that the current state of credit allocation is one that may be as much a product of choice as it is technological feasibility. And that is as sobering as it is exciting. And like many others, I'll be watching with interest to see how the market evolves and whether these dreams really add up when it comes to addressing some of our most intractable problems. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.